Any statements provided by Encompass Capital Advisors, LLC, are for informational purposes only and shall not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation to buy any investment product or services offered. While all the information discussed is believed to be accurate, Encompass makes no express warranty as to its completeness or accuracy, nor can it accept responsibility for any errors. The views and opinions expressed may be forward-looking and are subject to change without notice. Any projections, outlooks, or assumptions should not be construed to be indicative of the actual events which occur. Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast, powered by Vidrio Financial. Vidrio Financial is proud to support the Thematic Investors Podcast with host Kieran Kavana. Vidrio helps allocators harness the investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Welcome to the Thematic Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kavana, CIO of Old Farm Partners and the co-founder of this exciting podcast series, which is empowered by Vidrio Financial. Each month, the listener can expect to tune in to some innovative thinking for how in- institutional investors are approaching different investment themes and ideas. We think there are many incredible investors in the world that are not household names that are tomorrow's luminaries. My very first guest is Todd Canner, founder and portfolio manager of Encompass Capital, because Todd is an expert in an area that could be the most exciting to invest in over the next decade, and that is energy. The world has never used more energy than this year, and it's set to grow. In the midst of this energy increase, uh, there is, the world is undergoing a significant change, and that is energy transition. Encompass is arguably one of the most established buy-side hedge funds Founded in 2012, Encompass employs a low net exposure focused on traditional energy and renewables. Before Encompass, Todd was a portfolio manager at Citadel, where he managed a similar strategy. I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to share his perspectives with you. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor to be here as your first guest, and you're a true friend, so happy to support anything that you're doing. Well, I appreciate it, and it's... uh, been quite a decade for energy investing. Um, when we first met, oil was crashing, um, and the energy sector itself was really incredibly out of favor. It's almost as out of favor as it is today. Um, why did you focus your firm broadly on energy and energy transition? Right. So when I when I started managing a portfolio at Citadel, energy was sixteen percent of the S and P. Uh, when I launched Encompass, it was 12%, and then it troughed at 2% during COVID. Now it's a little higher than 4%. So in many ways, I felt like Tom Hanks during Castaway. I felt felt very alone in a sector where I think there's a ton of opportunity, ton of alpha opportunity, obviously a lot of geopolitics going on. Um, but there's, I think just once again, a lot of opportunity, not as much expertise given the small weighting in, 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 the, in the S&P. Luckily, Todd, in this island of Manhattan where you operate, there is power and a few more people than in Castaway. <laughs> Very um, true. And um, maybe you could uh, talk about a little bit about your travels, because I know you guys travel all over the earth and where you think we are in energy transition and different geographies and where they are where they are at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we travel a ton. I mean, my view is we're better off being on a plane seeing companies, seeing assets, then sitting at a desk and just staring at uh, staring at tickers. Uh, we've probably traveled to, to 40 plus countries at this point. We want to meet companies. And then we also really want to understand risk. So it's there's above surface risk and then there's below surface risk. 
um, for for geology, understanding the rock formations, going to a mine, going to an oil site, going to see a hydrogen site. Um, I call that you know below surface. And then the above surface is one of the, the kind of the tangible stuff that you need to see firsthand, understand the pipeline system. How do, how do we get from A to B? What's the government looking like? What's the permitting process? That's something that you can only really smell and feel if you're there versus um, talking about it over the phone with, with a company. Um, traveling is really important. We identify themes um, and energy and energy transition is very much about getting the thematic right, getting the, the alpha right. And it's not as much just typing in Microsoft Excel. I guess simply then, where do you think we are? What will it take for the world to transition from oil and gas? I mean, we've seen coal in the U.S. decline intensely, but we've seen it rise in China intensely. Uh, what do you think it will take for the world to transition and how long will it take? Well, it's it's easily going to take a generation. I mean, it's we're we're just in the beginning of this whole process. I mean, to put things in perspective, uh, cell phone usage was less than half a percent in the early '90s, and in 2008, I think it was like 50 percent global utilization or, or usage, and now it's over 92 percent. So that took you know 30 plus years, a, a generation. Clearly, uh, usage of cell phones versus transforming the energy complex is, is night and day. So a lot, a lot harder to do the energy transition. So we're, we're really far away. The path is set in motion though. It's kind of like a snowball going down a hill. Like it, it's it's happening. It's just probably not happening at the speed uh, that many hope for. And I think uh, many, and particularly politicians, don't realize the extent of what this process will entail. Maybe you could go through a little bit more on the idea of substitution. I mean, we we know that the world uses a lot of natural gas, uses a lot of coal to generate electricity, but now people hear a lot about wind and solar um, and how economic it is and the decline of coal, as I mentioned, in the United States. But what is how, how can you drill down a little bit further on the idea of substitution? Right. So j- just to start with, the, the world consumes 8 billion tons of coal a year. We consume roughly 101 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, these numbers are increasing. I mean, what, what's, what stands out to me is let's just take coal. Like, I think that's the easiest low-hanging fruit to, to transition to LNG, natural gas, hydrogen, solar, wind. So U.S. coal consumption peaked in 2005. And today, we're consuming roughly half in the United States that we consumed 18 years ago in, in 2005. Um, so we're consuming, last year, we consumed 512 million tons. Now, to put that in perspective, China is consuming roughly 400 million tons each month. Uh, Coal, because of what's going on with China, consuming so much, coal demand globally may peak in three years. So take the low-hanging fruit coal, it's still going to be years away. Let's take take gasoline. Like we're in a lot of of EVs on the road, Teslas here and there. Um, gasoline demand may not peak globally till roughly 2026, maybe 2027, based on EV sales. Uh, EV sales, there were 12, uh, there were 10 million sales last year. It's probably going to get to give or take 45 million globally in 2030. And even in that scenario, the world is going to back out and substitute 5 million barrels a day of gasoline. That's it. So the world is consuming this year roughly 101 million barrels a day, and we're going to back out roughly 5% with EVs. 
So as much as you know, we think we're doing for the energy transition with EVs, it's just it's a it's just a dead. China statistic you mentioned is extraordinary. I mean, 400 million a month of coal, tons of coal, and that's growing. Is that right? Yeah, it's still growing. It's going to grow. I mean, it's, it's, we're really data junkies at, at Encompass. We try to look at all the data available. So we're tracking Chinese thermal coal production, thermal coal imports, LNG imports. So we're tracking as much data on China as we can. And what stood out to me in the last 12 months is that China has ramped up LNG imports, but they've really ramped up uh, domestic thermal coal production and thermal coal imports as well. So I think China's really kind of taking a different approach than than what uh, what I think a lot of others are hoping for. Well, maybe much longer term, but nuclear is in the picture for China too, I think. Um, well, you know, regarding that, well, what do you think? Do you think there will be day in our lifetimes globally where we won't need oil and gas, where we won't need coal, I guess, depending on our age? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's going to be a long time. I mean, I don't know how long we're planning to live for, but, uh, in the next 30, 40 years, there's, there's zero chance we get rid of oil and coal hundred percent. I mean, even in the net zero 2050 scenario, the world is consuming oil and coal. Uh, let, let me repeat that. Cause I think it's really important. Even in the net zero 2050 scenario, the world is consuming coal and, and, and oil. So we just can't cancel these two commodities because they're needed. Um, I mean, just simply said, obviously in the US, Europe, uh, even China is doing a lot on energy transition, but in many other countries, it's about having cheap and reliable feedstocks to, to power cars, power homes, heat, air conditioning. Um, we're seeing that even just kind of with geopolitics, amount of uh, Russian oil that's going to certain countries like India. It, it's an opportunity to buy cheaper oil. And until we get to a price where hi, uh, hydrogen, solar, wind is more economic, more efficient, um, the cheap and reliable factor is going to be number one and number two. All right. Um, you know, you mentioned EVs having a, an impact, a modest impact on gasoline demand. But I think, you know, one of the things so interesting about this area is that if we are using EVs, we have more demand for electricity. Um, so do you think that we'll have a bit that increased use of EVs will have a bigger impact um, on renewables and embracing renewables? Right. I mean, I think uh, many Americans think that, you know, powering Tesla just comes from the wall or from the garage. And, and it's, it's it's kind of kind of ironic of, of you know, the amount of power generation that's needed globally to to fuel to to do that five million a day of substitution of gasoline. Um, EVs are economic for we'll just say on a CO two basis. Uh, really, the thresholds after three years because to build an EV is a lot more CO two intensive. And so, what's really important is what's the feedstock for our, our homes. So if we're if you live in parts of Georgia where it's nuclear power, it's it's highly accretive on a CO2 basis because now you're replacing gasoline with nuclear power that emits what's called zero CO2. But if you live in an area that has a coal-fired power plant, uh, like a lot of China, a lot of uh, you know in, in the U.S. that's that's fading out, it, it's 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 CO2 negative. So um, 
it, obviously it matters where you live. Um, and obviously power generation is just, just going to increase over time as third world nations, you know, live, you know, using iPhones, using YouTube. Um, and then obviously the, the EV transition as well. Yeah. I mean, this transition, I mean, I think we started using the phrase trillions versus billions. I don't know when, uh, we started doing that. I think it was probably during COVID, but, um, this truly is trillions of capex over the next, uh, just announced between Europe and in the United States. Um, could you talk about how big an impact the, these CapEx requirements are going to be? Um, and a, as we scale, um, we're already seeing some issues with wind at the moment. Um, but, you know, how, how will they, as we scale these massive projects, how will they reduce carbon? Right. So let's just, let's talk about CapEx because I think it's a kind of jump into the, the sector, going a little deeper. So 2022 is the first year where CapEx for renewables surpassed the CapEx for the oil and gas sector. So the numbers were $494 billion for renewables and $446 for oil and gas. And I assume that that, that trend is only going uh, to continue. Um, where, where, is this, where is this heading, though? Um, when you include not just new generation, but also infrastructure and end use, the total spending needed for transition is going to increase from roughly one trillion per year today to nearly four trillion per year by 2030. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know where all this money is going to come from. Um, the IRA is a, a huge, huge benefit. China, they have subsidies as well. Europe, they still haven't figured out really what their execution is on on a net zero, but it's just going to be really costly. I mean, the the, the part of it that's that's confusing is traditional energy is very efficient and coal is a very efficient uh, commodity. It runs 24 seven. Um, it's a very efficient commodity on, on, on breaking down the, the heat aspect, solar wind, as you know, it only, it's only sunny during the day, a wind it's only windy parts of the day. So as we're building out the grid and really building out renewables, um, we're going to need different baseload because what are we going to do at night when uh, certain areas, say, of California are all solar? I mean, it is extraordinary. And at a time when the world is growing and electrifying. I mean, I remember you explaining to me how China has increased emissions from 99, you know, almost 3x what they were today from, from 99. And the U.S. has actually declined, but globally emissions have increased. Um, as the world electrifies. So, um, you know, I remember in one of your letters, you also said that this is going to be a significantly greater challenge than when President Kennedy challenged the nation to land on the moon. I mean, maybe you could just comment on that because it does sound like it is an extraordinarily big CapEx project everywhere in the world at the same time. Right. Yeah. I mean, so the stat that you 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 get you just given, oh, the, uh, the U.S. has decreased emissions since 1999. Uh, Europe has been decreasing each year as well. But on the other hand, China has increased emissions from 4 billion tons a year in 1999 to 12 billion tons a year last year. So we're kind of at the point of we've, as we've exported a lot of jobs, export a lot of manufacturing to China, we've also just exported CO2 that would have been um, the, the emissions from here in North America over to China. As, as we all know, it's one earth. So it really doesn't matter where the emissions come from. 
Um, yeah. So in, in 1962, Kennedy made the big comment of, you know, we want to land on the moon within a decade. Um, in hindsight, this energy transition, you know, feat that we're on is, is going to be a lot more difficult. Um, but, it, but it's happening. I mean, we're, we're doing it. I mean, I think in the last few years, we've seen the politics are fully on board. Um, I think consumer sentiment is, I'd say, is partially there. I mean, I've seen stats of uh, there was a poll a couple of years ago. Do, do you want to help? Do you want to help fight climate change? And the average most Americans said yes. And then the next question was, how much are you willing to pay for it? And the average American said fifty dollars. So you know, it's you know, these we're now talking in trillions of dollars per year. And if Americans want to pay fifty bucks in total, like there's there's obviously a mismatch. So uh, I think we're going to be in a really difficult spot over the next couple of years because when interest rates were nearly zero. And we had this call it free money since 2009 with interest rates near zero. We could spend a lot. Of, we could spend a lot of money. The federal government could spend a lot. And now we're at this point uh, where the 10 year this morning's at you know, 4.0 and the cost of capital is going up for every company. Capital markets are, we'll just say, questionable over time. It's going to be a lot more difficult to say we could spend trillions of dollars as a public policy and companies also able to raise billions and billions of dollars for CapEx when interest rates are where they are. That's a huge, it's a great point. And it's an extraordinary time um, for these things. I mean, because I think a lot of investors saw a lot of science projects over the years um, and whether they came through SPAC, whether they IPO'd with no revenue, um, you know, along those lines, I guess will become more important, but Maybe you could comment on how much your oil and gas experience over the last 20 years, how much it impacts how you assess these new opportunities, long and short, in alternative energy. So I think I think of energy as one sector. And from a process standpoint, I don't care if it's traditional energy, such as oil and gas, or if it's renewables, such as solar wind. It, it is one umbrella. So when we turn on a light switch, we want our AC or heat or we turn on a car, the process to get that, that molecule um, is exactly the same. So it's there's something called upstream, midstream, and downstream. So the upstream is the production of, of, the, of the resource. So whether it's the solar panels uh, or drilling for oil and gas, the midstream is the pipeline. So that's the infrastructure to get it to, to the end use. And then the downstream is, we'll just say the gas station or, or now the home. And so when we're doing our analysis, it is the same exact approach. In addition, it's the same, there's the overlap is, is, is massive. So um, to take, I, I looked into, to take to solar, uh, take break evens. So I looked into installing solar panels on my roof and it was a 13 year payback in, in New York state. So um, why is that? Because it's pricing versus natural gas, which is what, what my house currently consumes, or take biofuels, the break-even is versus diesel prices. In Europe, hydrogen break-evens are, are priced against thermal coal or LNG prices. So to really, it, it is one sector, and I think some investors that don't have an energy background may not understand the complexity of looking at energy as one sector. I think many investors may looking may look at it on emotions and emotions only of well we need to we need to get from A to Z we need to get to net zero and therefore we're going to buy 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 be long only 
And I think they may miss uh, a lot of alpha opportunities. It's a great point about CapEx going into this, just becoming more expensive um, regarding uh, a lot of these ideas. And it sounds great on paper. Um, so maybe you could talk about why it's better to, to be an active investor in the space rather than a passive investor. Um, why wouldn't you, if there's trillions of dollars of CapEx, why not just buy the sector? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. So at the beginning of 2021, so Biden won the election in November. Um, the, the iClean index, ICLN, that, that's the renewable index, has roughly 100 stocks in it. Uh, it was trading at $28, $28 a share in early 2021. Today, it's $17. So it's down, we'll just say roughly 40%. Uh, I do think all of energy, whether it's traditional or renewables, it, it's an alpha sector. What makes renewables so interesting is that the winners are going to be massive winners. So these companies are going to go from zero EBITDA today to billions of EBITDA over time. Uh, in oil and gas, those companies, uh, the company's EBITDA is really correlated to oil prices and natural gas prices. But uh, it, it is interesting to think that the, the index has not been a beta trade since the IRA has been passed. And think about it in 2021, the Democrats had the House, Senate, and White House, and the index is still drastically underperformed tr traditional energy. Traditional energy was by far the best sector in the market last year. And so what we're doing is we're just trying to find dispersion. Um, we're always trying to find rates of change. And in renewables, I think we're going to be in this multi-year massive rate of change in all of these verticals. And when I say verticals, the battery space, LNG, hydrogen, wind, and the list, the list goes on. Uh, each of these verticals is going to have different pace of implementation, CapEx spend, CapEx raise, margin, either margins going higher, margins going lower, and, and obviously top line growth. Yeah. And now with cost of capital rising, Todd, right, it could get a lot more disperse. Um, maybe you could talk about a little bit just about how to manage a firm. I know you have a very big investment team and how you capitalize on all these different dispersions going on in these dynamics. Yeah. So, so I launched Encompass in, in uh, early 2012, and I think the firm is essential, just having the right team, a cohesive team, and having the process uh, the process in place. Uh, risk management is key. Uh, we are very much about incorporating reliable, timely data. Um, it's also really important to adapt and evolve to the changing markets. But first and most, it's about the team. Uh, the expertise, strong values, and culture. I mean, this this industry is, as you know, it's difficult. Where you know the team does well, the, and then it's just like a sports team where a team could have a winning streak and a losing streak, and how the team acts throughout the entire up and downs really says a lot about what the sust uh, sustainability of the team will be. It's true of any business, isn't it? Um... It, could you talk a little bit about data? I mean, we hear about data all the time in the investment business, and there are different people doing different things. I mean, you guys are particularly data focused for a firm that is discretionary, where you're picking stocks. Could you just go through how data has evolved for you and why it's so important? Yeah, it, data data is essential. I mean, what I love about energy at being a four percent of the S and P, 
and data is, uh, I think there's more data available in energy than any other sector. And so I think many firms are not putting the resources into data for energy specifically for that 4%. Uh, we will spend as much money as possible as, as needed on data because I, I want to make sure we're sprinting and we're just far ahead of, of anyone in data. I don't know any other firm that does as much on the data side and energy uh, as us. And uh, I'm obviously not going to reveal all the secrets that we have on, on the data side uh, on this podcast, but we are looking at everything to figure out rates of change and tracking as many cargoes as possible. So we are, we're, we're looking, I mean, every well drilled in North America is public information. So just starting with that. And um, we're just going, we started looking at data in 2008 at Citadel uh, before the term big data was actually used. And we've just really enhanced it day in, day out of starting with traditional energy and now doing the same exact same process with renewable energy. And we're seeing the same results. And it seems like more and more investors are embracing a data centric approach, but it's what you do with that data, isn't it? All right. That really is important. Um, and piecing it together while having the background of the entire picture and energy, because energy is particularly uh, diverse. Don't you think? I mean, it really matters what's going on in coal and that gas and being able to count those things and understand what's going on then in solars, for instance. Right. It's it's, it's like a sports team. It's the team, the team, the team. And uh, having data alone is not enough. So we need to see management teams. We need to see the, the the hydrogen plant, the solar farm, whatever whatever the asset is, and then obviously have the financial modeling as well, modeling the companies, understanding the cash flow statements, income statements, uh, balance sheets. So it kind of goes to the name encompass. We're trying to encompass capital. We're trying to encompass the research by looking at data, doing on-site visits, and and the modeling as well. It's great. Well, you know, so I think the one of the big things right now is access to capital. As you pointed out, the cost of capital is rising uh, for this energy transition to accelerate. Is there any way you think that um, capital formation could be expedited so we can get to a net zero type world quicker? So to start with, a lot of the traditional energy companies are recycling the free cash flow from traditional energy into renewables. So take the big oils, a lot of the utilities, they are they're generating free cash flow and they have a low cost of capital because it's it's very profitable right now. So those companies are able to grow. Um, the question is a lot of these emerging companies that how can they go from literally a PowerPoint presentation to building a giga plant or solar farm or a hydrogen uh, development project and getting those online in the next few years. So they have the they have the project plans in place. Now they need, we'll just say billions of dollars. To, and you're right. So the, the capital markets need to be open. So for that to happen, investors like us need to see that the project is going to be profitable. It's going to be economic. Um, and then they're going to need to raise equity. They're going to need, need to raise debt. And uh, that's where the governments are really coming in. So we're seeing the EU starting to give out some subsidies. Uh, I think they need to do a lot more in Europe. 
uh, the U.S. with the IRA bill is just causing a lot of projects that were going to be built in Europe actually just start moving to the United States. And that process started uh, a year ago. It was, it was immediate right after the IRA bill was was signed. Many companies said, well, it's just too economic to, to pass up the United States. So we're going to just see a massive supply build. And it's from many countries. You're going to see, I mean, we could talk about that later, but like Chinese Solar companies are spending a lot of time here in the U.S. Do they build here? But European utilities are building here as well. So we're just seeing this massive buildup. The question is, these smaller companies, will they have access to the capital markets or not? And that's just time will tell. Todd, real quick, um, you know, I think that the uh, I mean, what's ironic a little bit is that the world is focused on technology investing, semiconductors. You You can't you know, we hear about it every day. Uh, but there's nothing more technological uh, in, in terms of innovation than what's going on in the energy space. I mean, is the pace of technology breakthroughs, are they actually picking up a little bit? I mean, I've never heard of carbon capture until a couple of years ago. These battery technologies, I mean, everyone knows what lithium ion is at, at this point. But are we seeing real technological breakthroughs that could move this transition forward? So the two areas where I would like to see more uh, advancements are one's in nuclear. I mean, nuclear just has to be part of the solution. It just, and I think it'll be more on a smaller scale than than the big nuclear power plants. Just just to get things to get things moving. Um, batteries, we're going to see a lot more technology advancements as well. Uh, break evens are keep going lower for solar. They keep going lower for hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen is 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 an interesting commodity because you really need excess green for green hydrogen to work you really need excess power and so you need the solar panels to be located in a place where you have extra um extra power because there is some slippage as hydrogen is uh, of loss of power as hydrogen is being produced but as a whole we definitely need technology advancements to get to this net zero because i don't know society can can really spend four trillion a year. Like it's just, it's that's a lot of money. There's a lot of money, uh, Todd. I think we're gonna have to leave it right there. Um, that's the time we have. And uh, nuclear is an entirely in another podcast at some point. So I really appreciate your time today um, going through this, and uh, it's going to be an exciting time to be an investor. Great. Well, uh, it was a real, real fun to be here, and thank you. Big thanks to Todd Canner for taking this time today. Uh, Be sure to join us next month when we focus on another thought leader in thematic investing. Until then, stay well and be sure to listen to future episodes on Vidrio.com. Todd, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thematic Investors Podcast, powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, and sovereign wealth funds, can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Kieran Cavada. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. 
Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.